Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 12 of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining us today is Jesse Itzler. Jesse is the co-founder of Marquee Jets, a partner in Zico Coconut Water, and an owner of the Atlanta Hawks. He's also the New York Times bestselling author, having written Living with a Seal, and the newly released Living with the Monks. Jesse is also a motivational speaker, the founder of the 100 Mile Club, and a father of four. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm number 12. At number 12 of hopefully many. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, let's do it. So the first thing I just wanted to jump in with was I was going through your Instagram account last night and you had a post that you put up in April where you were talking about in 2009, you were going for the 40 and over basketball tryouts and there were 70 plus people trying to get about six spots. And I thought it was extremely passionate and awesome that you shared this message about how you doubled the workouts that they had said, here's your typical workout that you should do. So it seems like there's a clear takeaway that having bigger hunger and drive and taking more action is really important. But on top of that message of, hey guys, take more action, do more than everyone else, how do you tap into possibly increasing that motivation? So, okay, I know I need to do more, but I don't kind of feel like it. So how have you been able to tap into extra motivation and sharing that message with you? I just think that the goal has to be bigger than the obstacles. So the goal in this particular case that you're referencing, I had this goal of trying out for this over 40 basketball team where there are only a handful of slots. And I knew of the 70 people that were trying out, I was probably not in the top five, maybe not even the top 50. So I needed, no different than business, I needed to be different. And I asked myself, how am I going to be different? How is my product different? How am I different? How am I going to make this team and stand out amongst these 70 people? I realized that I would never make the team based on ability, but I can make it on conditioning. And the goal of making the team was a big goal for me. And it was something that I really was emotionally attached to. Um, I blasted it out. I had accountability because I let people know I was trying out. And um, that was my motivation to go out on the days and, and, you know, work out when I didn't want to. It was just like the goal was bigger than the I don't want to get out of bed kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when you have a deep emotional connection to a goal, it's actually in your subconscious through all your, you know, whatever it is you're going through in your journey to get there the obstacles become smaller, the bigger the attachment. And for me, you know, as you mentioned, they sent a, a, a book on like how to train for this workout, you know, and how to get there, how to be in shape for the tryout. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if I follow this book to the T, I'll be in the exact same shape as everyone else. But if I double it, yeah. I'll be in twice as good a shape as everyone else. And that's what I did. And it worked. That's awesome. One, one thing that I've noticed you doing, you talk about this in Living with the Monks, is you kind of hold yourself accountable by blasting out onto social media like, hey, everyone, I want to do this. And it kind of makes you stay true to this goal that you've set because you have so many people kind of rooting for you and aware of what's going on. How do you think people could so, sort of create that if they don't have you know, a million followers or a huge audience like you, but still kind of tell people to keep them on the hook for something? For me, I want the pressure. As an entrepreneur, we play for pressure. My yeah. friend Glover always says that pressure is a privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you have pressure, you're in a position where you, you could do something great, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I always look for an edge. And blasting it out, they say that having an accountability partner is one of the, one of the key things to accomplishing a goal, um, as well as there's others, but that's one of the key. So for me, 
putting the pressure on me by letting people know I'm going to try something is an incredible motivator. It just puts extra pressure on. If I don't say anything, very often what I do is I, I give myself an excuse in my head. I'll start negotiating. Oh, it's okay if I don't do it. I have too much work on myself. Or I have to be with my kids or I have this. But if it's out there in the universe, I can't really take it back. And so it becomes a motivator as opposed to, and, and you look for any kind of edge you can get to become motivated. And that's one of many things that I do mm -hmm. to get myself motivated. Nice. So how else do you stay motivated and get that ramped up going, coming into a goal that you've set? Everything from music to um, quotes, to the accountability, to circling it on my calendar, to journaling, to uh, talking about it, to obsessing on it, to researching it. And, you know, when I have a goal, it becomes part of my lifestyle for the duration of the time I have the goal. So if, if I have a goal with a definitive date, I'll say I want to lose weight for my wedding. It becomes, it's not a chore. It's not a hassle. It's part of my lifestyle until my wedding date, until I lose the weight for my wedding date. And then after that, I can go on my merry way. But when you have a definitive date, like, okay, the tryout is on this date, goals become a lot easier because you just say to yourself, it's over after this date. You want to run a marathon? You only have to be great for one day, the day you're running the race. The other 364 days, you don't have to be great. But for that one day, you have to be great. And when you start to realize that like, wow, I can channel all this energy into this one specific moment, it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I feel that in you, that sort of passion and desire. And just from like a systematic standpoint, when you set a goal, do you kind of like have to-do lists or frameworks? Do you put the goal up on, a, on the wall and writing? Do you do anything like that that helps as well? Sometimes, but usually um, it depends how big the goal is and what it is. So sometimes I do do that, but usually it's just so baked into my daily routine. It's, yeah. Again, it's become part of my lifestyle that I just don't need it. I've been a goal chaser since I'm a young kid. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe when I was younger, I had to like, okay, let's write our four goals down for the year and let's make our resolutions and let's yeah. map it out. Now I just, I've had, I'm so goal driven. Right. It's just like, okay, here's my goal. I can go after it. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I want to shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about the new book, Living with the Monks. Just in the beginning of it, something that seemed kind of small that you sort of mentioned passing by stood out to me a lot, which was you were talking about how you got into watching NFL games on Thursday night, Sunday night, Monday night, college football games, and you sort of caught yourself and say, hey, this is kind of taking over and becoming a little bit too much, maybe becoming a little excessive and getting in the way of freeing up time for me. Uh, I'm really curious how you identified that and were able to take action like that because I noticed that with myself, with my friends, that there's something that just starts to creep up and then become this huge thing that's getting in the way of us accomplishing goals or even relaxing or doing something else with our time. I, uh, I'm a big math guy. I'm not a great math student. I'm not, definitely not a math whiz, but I like to put math behind things. Right. And that's a good way for me to kind of reverse engineer my life. And I spend a lot of time now reverse engineering my life. A lot of us, most of us live our life forward. So we say like, what are we doing on Christmas? What are we doing for New Year's? What are we doing next week? What are we doing next summer? Where are you in five years? Where are you going to, where's your job? How big is your business going to be in 10 years from now? You know, how many followers are you going to have? Brandon, you're into followers. How many followers are you going to have in the next two years? All that stuff. 
Yeah. But you don't think backwards. And when you start to reverse engineer your life, you say, okay, the average American lives to be 78. If I'm average, I hope I'm not turning 50. That means I had 28 years left. Who do, you know, that you start to look at life differently. And when you look at all the things you want to accomplish, I have a long thing, list of things I want to do in that short amount of time, something has to give. And when I started to like look into my life, I realized, man, like I don't have time to lally gaggle. That's a word. <laughs> like, and where am I lally gaggling? Where am I going to find all this new time to do the shit that I really want to do that moves the, the needle? And I realized like, well, if I do live 30 more years or 35 more years and I multiply out how many hours I'm spending watching football, it equals 36,000 hours. So if I just pull the plug out of the wall, I'm going to free up 36,000 hours. You can get a lot of stuff done in 36,000 free hours. And once I did that, it just became like eye-opening. Like, and I use it against my wife. I'll be like, you know, I want to go, I'm going to go skiing this weekend. What do you mean you're going to go? What do you, I just, that's going to take 48 hours. I freed up 36,000. What are you talking? Give me my ski weekend. It, it just, it just allows me to, you got to find time somewhere. The one thing we all have in common is the same 24 hours in a day. Yep. You have to, how you use it might be different than how I use it. I use it very preciously. And, you know, watching Hawaii play Wisconsin at two in the morning isn't efficient for me. I'm not saying it's not fun. I'm not saying I don't watch football anymore. I do, but I've, I've radically, radically reduced that. Yeah. I feel like there's this big elephant in the room that our lives will end. And it's so easy for us to forget that, you know, people just, we lose track of the fact that we have this one existence. Did you always have that perspective that there was an end and like using that to motivate you to accomplish like the Steve Jobs mentality or did that come later in life? Came. I always had urgency to do stuff. I always want like, I'm a ready fire aim guy. So I was always like, good idea. Let's start that business. Great idea. Sign me up. Like without thinking of the consequences, the elephant in the room isn't, we're all going to die. It's when the elephant in the room is, you know, we don't know when we're going to die. We're all dying every day. We're getting closer to that day. Um, so our life is getting shorter every day to that when we just don't know when. So the elephant in the room is when the when comes, did you get everything out of it that you could? And to me, when you start to like, and again, I, how old are you, Brandon? I'm 31. So you're, you're not thinking like that. You're thinking, how can I make money? How yeah. can I meet people? How can I build my relationships? I'm living forever. And that's cool at 30. But if I knew at 30 what I knew at 50 and had the urgency, you know, I would, be li I would live my life a little bit diff more differently. Not tremendously because I've been lucky enough to live it on my own terms. Yeah. But as you get older, that elephant gets bigger. Yeah. Well, I, you're I really gonna see in the next, you're going to see in the next 10 years, you might even see it sooner that people in your world get sick. Your parents get older, your friends all of a sudden, Holy shit, this guy's got what he got diagnosed with what he's only 35. That shit happens more as you go from your thirties, definitely in your forties and a hundred percent in your fifties. So once you get those eye-opening things, you start to realize like, I'm not going to sleep till two o'clock today. 
I'm not going to stay in my apartment until two o'clock. I'm going to go and do. Yeah. Wow. I feel that. So a uh, little wake up call for someone in their thirties right now. So uh, the next question I want to ask, so you just said something about living life on your terms, which is something it seems like you've really done over the course of all these different ventures you've been on. And I want to go back to your parents when I've heard you on other interviews talking about your mom and her influence about when you went to college and encouraging you to try all these different things and your father's influence and freedom that he gave you. Can you just talk a little bit more about their role in your upbringing and how it may have contributed to the things that you've done and accomplished in your life? As a father of four now, yeah. you start to see how you were raised because it's the only real, um, you can read parenting books and get tips and lessons. But for me, I look back on my actual guides, my teachers, and you know, like one good dad or one good mom could be the equivalent of a thousand good books or teachers. My parents let, let me have a long leash. They let me explore. They, they introduced me to opportunities. And I don't mean like we traveled the world. My father owned the plumbing supply house. We didn't travel the world, but, um, but he, but he gave me opportunities. We would drive to Florida. We would see the country. We'd stuff the car and go on camping trips. And we just did stuff. And he exposed me to different people. You know, we tend to be in, live in our own little circle of influencers and like, oh, I surround myself with like-minded people. Great. You're going to do the same shit. But like the real growth comes when you can learn so much from people that are so different from you. And my parents like exposed me to all kinds of people. Um, and that was a really powerful thing. I think more so than most kids in my neighborhood. They had black friends, Italian friends. We had international kids come in. I mean, I just got exposed to all that. And it opened me up to like, it was just a great gift. And they encouraged me to try different things. When I went to college, my mother said, do everything. Sign up for every course, go to every lecture, watch every play, do every intramural sport, meet every person. And I did. And, you know, that was the beauty of college wasn't in what I learned in economics 202. It was the daily stuff that I was doing and the independence that I was getting and the creativity and, and the habits and all that stuff of, you know, stepping into the unknown, which mm -hmm. is where all the growth comes. Wow. You know, one thing that really stood out to me was when I heard that it was like around 1990 when you were getting into music and starting to send out these cassette tapes and uh, your friends were sending out job resumes. Like how there had to be some innate part of you, because even with that upbringing, you must have felt some kind of pressure to get a normal job and go follow the path that everyone else is. Did you have anything else that sort of allowed you to go on your own unbeaten path? Or maybe it was from the parents and maybe there's something you could share with people out there because I see a lot of students who come into college and they want to go follow a passion. And then by the end, they're taking the LSATs and getting ready to go to law school. I felt zero pressure. All my friends were writing resumes to get jobs. I felt like that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a record deal. If I would have sent resumes out, I would have given myself an ex I was basically giving myself uh, not an out, but I was basically rationalizing my dream and saying, it's okay if I don't get this, here's my B plan. By not sending any resumes out, I was 100% focused on getting a record deal. I felt no pressure. I knew I was going to get it. I don't want not to sound obnoxious, but that's the actual mindset I had at 21. It's like, oh, why are you guys 
I'm not wasting my time sending resumes. I don't want a job. I want a record deal. If I send a resume, I'm telling myself that I'm going into job mode. I'm not in job mode. I'm in get a record deal mode. So when all my roommates were typing and sending and going on interviews, I was plotting. How am I going to get my demo heard? How am I going to do this? What if, if, if I don't get a record deal, how am I going to put it out myself? How can I get discovered? Where, like, that's what was going through my mind. So resume was distraction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and how do you either now or back then, did you have any kind of system or way of dealing with fear or that voice in your head saying, what if you don't get it? How are you going to make money? Or even if you, that was never an issue for you, any advice for people who might feel that and how they could deal with fear? I mean, I, 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 I have fear just like everybody else, a lot of it, you know, and some of mine's irrational. Um, I think, I don't know how I coped with it when I was little, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, not little, but when I was in my 20s or even 30s, going into meetings, trying to sell pitch ideas to people that were, had a lot more money, a lot more experience, and a lot smarter than me was intimidating. Um, I don't know. To be honest with you, now I just I realize again being exposed to people that all of a sudden friends get sick, something happens. This one's in an accident. This one did this. Like, what does it really matter if people don't like my book or if people don't? I don't get the job or it really doesn't. I don't want it to happen. I don't like bad reviews. But it, in a hundred years from now, nobody watching your podcast is going to be alive. There'll be a whole new crop of people. So when you start to realize how insignificant, no one in, you know, very people in China really care what's going to happen in your day to day, or if you have worries, like we're in our own thing and it's small in relation to the universe, fear goes away fast. What I'll do, what I'll often do is I'll ask myself, what's the worst thing that can happen? I get thrown out of the meeting. I don't get the job. I don't get the raise, but I'm only going to get the raise or the job or the meeting by asking or by taking the chance. And, you know, um, I have a lot of regret for things that I didn't do in my life. Didn't try out for this team, you know, didn't ask this girl on a date, whatever it was. But a lot of that regret is not because of the effort. It's because I didn't, I didn't try. The regret isn't that this business failed. Okay, I tried my hardest. It didn't, I might not get the results that I want all the time. But the, regret, the regrets that I have are from not calling you, hey, will you do my podcast? Not saying, can I take a meeting? Not getting nine, you know, those are the regrets. Yeah, I love that what's the worst that could happen framework because even when I was working in Wall Street, I wanted to start my own passion business of some kind and I was freaking out about it. And they said, hey, worst case scenario, I try it, it doesn't work. I go get a better job, which is more aligned with my why as I discover what I've learned along this journey. Right. So, yeah, it's a great framework. Um, You mentioned failure, which I think is a really powerful concept. And I was just kind of looking at quotes the other day, and I saw this quote that said, if you're not um, failing, you're not trying hard enough. And I've heard you say this before. uh, When you look at a failure, it's life's way of telling you that you're a little off course. I'm curious, how did you cultivate that way of thinking about failure in this positive mindset? Because so many people, they go out, they try one thing once, it doesn't work. Not only does that stop them from ever doing anything again, but they also then beat themselves up about it and take responsibility like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. I, first of all, I don't believe that if you, you know, if, if you fail, you're not trying hard enough. I think you can try really hard 
you know, the Cavaliers tried really hard this year. They didn't win the championship. And I think right. if they would have tried harder, they still probably wouldn't have won the championship. And, you know, I could try as hard as I want to dunk a basketball. <laughs> and I could try forever. And I probably won't be able to dunk basketball. Yeah. So certain things, there are limits around and, and, and whatever. And very often, you know, you can concentrate and focus more and provide and do less effort uh, and get your goal, you know? So, I mean, um, so that, I just wanted to mention that. Um, what was the question though? <laughs> no, thanks for clarifying that point. I, I agree with what you're saying. The question was also, second part was like, when you, you said, I've heard you say this before in an interview, when you look at a failure, it's life's way of telling you that you're just a little off course. And I feel like that's a very powerful and optimistic way to look at failure to sort of use that for redirection rather than for giving up. And I'm curious where that came from. Well, I just, um, it doesn't, it just means that, you know, I, I've, I, I consider myself an entrepreneur. I've never worked for anybody. You know, I never had a resume. So I, I consider myself an entrepreneur, but I've had plenty of failures. Doesn't mean that, um, I'm a failure as an entrepreneur means that the idea might not have been right. It doesn't mean like quit being an entrepreneur, Jesse. It just means that like maybe your magic pen wasn't a great idea and maybe you are a good entrepreneur. You just need to go into a different lane. And that's really what I'm saying, saying there. And, um, you know, look, I just wrote a book and, uh, I struggled with writing it and it was really hard to write the book. And it was my second book. The first book was just as hard, um, but it doesn't mean give up. When I read the book and I'm like, this sucks, six months into it, doesn't mean give up. It just means maybe I need to go a different direction with this book mm -hmm. and maybe I need to go down a different lane and then you get a momentum and you're like, whoa, I got some momentum and now you have a rhythm and now all of a sudden it's starting to build and the momentum's building and that's how it happens. So, you know, very often, just because you get a no or you're failing or it's not working doesn't mean stop. It just means you might be a little bit off course. It doesn't mean you're not just because I can't dunk doesn't mean I'm not a good basketball player. It doesn't mean I got to get out of the gym. It just means that maybe I shouldn't be dunking and I should be working on shooting or passing or being a leader in the locker room or whatever the strength is. So that, that's sort of what I'm saying. Got it. And, and when, you, when you go through something like that and you can't dunk or you can't do this, and you, but you know maybe you're close, do you have any kind of system or process or way that you can sort of align onto the right course? Like when you were writing your book, how did you know where to go? You keep trying. You, you just, you know, it's like you keep trying. 95% of the people at some point come to a place where they say stop. And 5% of the people go that extra, into that extra area, that extra lane to to see, you know, and to find the success. For me, um, I just keep trying and opening up other doors and trying to, you know, see where my angle is, how, where, where's, where's the, where's the white space? Where's the opportunity? Um, I ask myself questions, you know, I ask myself a lot of questions. How am I different? Why is this working? What would make this a success? What if, you know, whatever the, I ask questions until I get to a place where it makes sense. Very often when you ask questions, there's, you find one question that trumps all the other questions. So for example, um, let's say you're in a, in a relationship and you know, you're married and your wife is, um, 
doing bad things. She's going out, she's partying, she's doing drugs, maybe she's having a relationship on the side. You're sensing a lot of bad things. And you're asking yourself all these questions. Why is she doing this? Does she not like me? Is this correctable? Am I willing to stay in this? Can this be fixed? And then, you know, I want to have kids, but this is not. And then you ask yourself, is this the mother of my children? If the answer is no, all the other stuff doesn't matter. Is this fixable? Could this, do I still love her? Is there really, all those hours of questions, they're irrelevant if you want to have kids and she's not the mother of your kids. So you can get up to a place where you go to like this one question and you're like, whoa, none of this other stuff matters because she, I don't see her raising my kids. Done, move on. You understand? Like, so you yeah. go to a place where you can get to, can I fix this book? If the answer is no, move on. If the answer is yes, how am I going to fix this book? Yeah. Have you ever like abandoned a project or a goal or something? Yeah. Cause yes. I feel like that would kind of be aligning you in the right way to give up on something that wasn't right for you. Yes. I have abandoned projects. Projects have failed. Yeah. I've, you know, um, lost money, all that stuff. Everything you can imagine. I'm 50. I'm an entrepreneur. I've made money. I've blown all my money. I've made more money, blown some of that money. I mean, done all that stuff. Yeah. Even Tim Ferriss talks about like a microcosm example of this, which is if you're reading a book and it's like you're a hundred pages into a 900 page book and you just hate it. So many people muscle through it and they don't enjoy it for three months and they don't read all the books that they wanted to. For some reason we have this fear of failure maybe because we're not following through on certain things, even if they're not right for us. You know, that's true. But at the same point, if um, there's a, there's a, a, when you do muscle through it and finish it, there's a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're creating an environment in your head, not to challenge Mr. Ferris. No, no, no. But you're creating an environment in your head that my goal was to read this book and I'm a finisher. I finish what I start. And very often if you don't, you're like, oh, if I don't like it, I can just move on. Life doesn't work like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's like the easy way out of a marriage. Eh, it's not working out. I'll get a divorce. Like, you know, no, sometimes you have to power through it and feel what it feels like to finish what you started, even if you don't like it. Now, I'm not saying read every book that sucks when you started. I actually agree with him in a sense that like you get to 100 pages, you know, I've bailed on a million books myself, but there's another side to that too. For right. those that do finish the book, it's building their grit muscle. It's building there. I finish what I start muscle. And that's a really powerful tool in life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, one thing I also wanted to ask you, because you mentioned money earlier, was <clears throat> I remember listening to uh, a podcast you did and you were talking about how you had uh, made a bunch of money, I think, selling CDs of the Bulls, the Chicago Bulls when Jordan came back. And you were at a point where you'd sold maybe like half a million CDs or something. Yeah. And then you had that, uh, juxtap or the fork in the road where you could go buy the house and car versus reinvest in your business. And you said doing the latter was a huge payoff for you long-term. And I'm curious how you made that decision and how you could potentially inspire listeners right now to make a decision like that and reinvest in themselves rather than go buy the shiny thing. For starters, I was young. So I had not made really any real money. Um, I think I was making $35,000 a year at the time. 
and half of that went to taxes and I lived in New York. So I was probably negative eight grand <laughs> a year. Um, and then all of a sudden I had the Chicago Bulls CD and we sold a million units and I had a windfall of money come into the business with my partner. And my first reaction was I'm buying a car, I'm buying, a, I'm buying a house. Um, and his reaction was, and we argued about this, no, we're taking all the money and we're going to sign exclusive deals. So no one else can do these sports things. We were doing music that we were doing. And I just, my decision process, it wasn't really that hard a decision. I had lived this single, you know, eat what you kill, check to check lifestyle for so long. What was the difference, you know, of like go another couple of months. Yeah. Um, but no, I realized that I had to invest back into the business if we wanted to, the opportunity was just too great uh, to, to sacrifice the short term home and car or whatever for the potential upside that, so it was an easy, it wasn't really a hard decision. It was a hard decision at the time. As I look back on it, it was the right decision. It worked out for us. Um, it was a hard decision. I take it back at the time, but um, when you weigh the pros and the cons, the upside just outweighed the benefit of uh, having a, a car or, or, you know, or even getting an apartment or something. Right. Right. And do you think that being frugal or, you know, very careful with your money and having that uh, drive and hunger to be conservative early, especially early on is important for entrepreneurs. Cause sometimes we see that we have mm -hmm. these people starting businesses, they get a bunch of VC funding and they're getting, they're drawing out like $150,000 salaries when they should kind of be like sleeping on the floor type approach. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that at all? Um, I didn't even know what VC meant until <laughs> I was probably 40. So <clears throat> um, I think everybody's different. I think for some people, they keep, they want to stay hungry. I, st I, I still stay hungry. I still stay hungry. There's no, no fancy watches, man. No, you know, I mean, I have access and I have stuff, but I, I, I stay hungry for sure. Mm -hmm. And I work at that. I work on that. Um, I want to have the comforts, but I don't want to lose the hung that underdog mentality. I love being the underdog. I grew up the underdog. I still stay the underdog. I put myself in positions where I am the underdog. I feed off being the underdog. So um, I think there's two ways to do it. You know, some people get comfortable and they take the 150 and they buy and they this and it it might work. <clears throat> it might work for them. Um, but I think even if you do that, I think it's important you stay hungry at yeah. any level. Elon Musk is hungry. Yeah. Elon Musk is an underdog. You know, I wouldn't bet against him, but he goes into areas where people are like, you can't do that. Oh, yeah. You know, and he, he doesn't have to do that. And what I like about him is he's got, you know, I love people that are in positions where they don't have to, but they do. Yeah. Yeah, I love that too. So I uh, would love to talk about the book or both books. Um, maybe we could just start with Living with the Monks, kind of how that idea came to be and just anything you'd like to share with listeners about it. Just, I learned best going into the unknown. I think all the real growth comes from going into areas where there's it's completely unknown. I invested a, I'd invested a lot of time and money in physical parts of my life. I've run marathons and ultra marathons and have trainers and go to gyms, but I've invested very little on spiritual stuff, the emotional side. Yeah. And I think, figured like at this stage of my life, I need that. And to be the best version of me, I really need that. And I was like, well, who would be the best person to learn from? And 
monks popped into my head as the kind of like spiritual leaders. And um, so I decided to live on a monastery for 15 days. I went and lived with eight monks, four of which had been there for 50 years on this isolated monastery here in the States. What was your biggest unexpected takeaway? I'm sure you kind of knew you were going to disconnect from technology, have some kind of experience, but what did you come back from and look back and say, wow, I didn't see that coming? Um, I think a big part of it was my relationship with time. I didn't like my relationships. I think of in terms of people, I don't, you don't really think of them in terms of money and time and, um, time went really slowly there, like super slow. When you get out of routine, when you're in routine, you do the same thing every day. All of a sudden you wake up and you're 50, 60, 70. You're like, whoa, that went so fast. When you're out of your routine, time stops. And when you're out of your routine, very often, it's not, you're not thinking of it in, in minutes. You think in minutes, you're thinking of it in moments. And I came with a new perspective around time. I think that was a really big thing for me. I realized that like I wasn't very often I'm not where my feet are. So like I'm at a soccer game. I'm at the soccer game, sweetie, but my head's on my to-do list, what I want to do next week, what I have to do this afternoon. And then the soccer game's over and you're like, who won? You know, <laughs> what do you mean? Like <laughs> your son scored five goals. So, um, I, you know, a lot of time around just realizing that I need to be more present. Um, and just realize that like in this chapter of my life, and you're not there right now, you're in your 30s, so you're in a different segue. But for me, um, and it does apply in your 30s too, like I want to spend as much time doing the things I love to do with the people I want to do them with. That's how I want to live my life. I have to make money. I have to make, you know, I understand I have responsibilities, but at the end of the day, when I look at my pie chart of time, I want as much of it to be done doing the things I want to do. The sooner you realize that and you can shape your life to do that. And you do, you travel a lot. I mean, I see what you're doing. Um, the richer your life will be because the more you experience, the more you have to offer. The more you experience, the more you can offer the world. And um, so I feel bad for the people that realize that at 75, 80 and just don't have the years left to do it or the health to do it. Mm -hmm. And I really admire the people that kind of take life on their own terms in their twenties and thirties and then live it out forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And uh, just sort of, you said a rich living a rich life and I'm really curious kind of your philosophy on money as someone who has made a lot over the years and I'm sure you're going to make a lot more money as well. But what, kind of the correlation between money and happiness, like, do you agree with this article from the Huffington Post that once you hit 100K, you know, then it's on you, no incremental wealth? Like, I'm just curious what you think about that. As I didn't read the article. I mean, I think, again, I think um, money helps. It helps a lot. It takes pressure off. It allows you to do things. The best thing that I found about having money is the people that it, it allows you to meet. And it allows you to treat the people that you care the most about to really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's also complicated and creates issues and stress and um, it can be very dangerous. So um, money's a very complicated thing. But I will say this, most of the things that I've done in my life that have given me the most reward 
um, didn't cost a lot of money. You know, I climbed Mount Washington with my son last year and there's not even a parking fee to go to Mount Washington. You have to get a jacket and you need boots and it's cold, but that's one of the, when I look back on 2018, that's going to be a highlight trip, not the other 364 days when we're in our routine. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I want to make money. It's fun. My wife always says it's fun to make fun to spend and fun to give away. Uh, but it's a magnifying glass. And if you're an asshole, it's going to make you a bigger asshole. And if you're a good guy, it's going to make you a, a much better guy. Wow. I really like that metaphor with the magnifying glass. Um, so we're, we're wrapping up here a little bit. I just definitely wanted to ask you about um, your involvement with the Atlanta Hawks as a co-owner, kind of how that came to be and how do you stay true to your roots of the New York Knicks? But uh, more seriously, kind of what's that experience been like as, you know, yeah, I'm part of the ownership group. Um, there's, I think, 14 owners. Um, and I live in Atlanta. I was a fan, uh, season ticket holder first when I moved down here and just fell in love with the team and the, the culture and the brand and the organization. I became a consultant to the team. Uh, and then when the team was for sale, I was able to participate with the ownership group. So it's um, as a basketball fan, it's just I mean, I can't even explain it. Uh, it's just so the fun and the opportunity, but there's also um, a responsibility, you know, um, and it's different. You know, I was at my son's swim meet the other night and everyone's asking me who we're going to draft and who's there. Like, <laughs> you know, I defer yeah. that. Um, but um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. We have a great, so, you know, we are, our group, we have um, the way the way that it works is there's a governor. Our governor is Tony Ressler, who's kind of the the um, principal owner, and he's done a really good job. And you know, I think I'm lucky because the group is so inclusive that we get to really participate as owners, and it's been fun. That's awesome. And as someone who kind of grew up being involved in sports and writing music, you know, you were going to New York, go oh, legendary song. Is there anything you've learned about sports from this part chapter of your life that you didn't know from all this experience with the Knicks and the Bulls and playing basketball and everything? That's a really good question. Uh, yes, I've learned a lot. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I've learned a lot about the process and, you know, um, the behind the scenes. Just, you know, I, I enjoy, what I enjoy most is I'm a marketing guy, so I enjoy the marketing side of it. Um, I'm not a basketball expert. I couldn't draft. I wouldn't know anything, you know, I and mean, we have a great coaching staff and everyone that does that, but I enjoy the marketing side of it. I enjoy the interaction with the community and I wasn't expecting that. And I just, you know, it sports is very powerful. Look at New York. It bridges billionaires, thugs, cultures. I mean, everyone comes together in the garden. It yeah. is the melting pot and roots for the Knicks. It's the one place in New York you know, one of the few where everyone comes together and is aligned. 20,000 people of all different, you know, walks of life come together, raise, wave their rally flag for two hours and root for the Knicks. That's powerful. You don't get it in politics. You don't get it in business, you know, but you get it in sports. You get it in music. And um, with that comes responsibility, you know, to, to deliver the best and provide the best opportunity and 
So being a part of that on any level for my wife and I is exciting. I love that. That's so well said. Um, before we just finally wrap up and, I, and you share kind of where everyone can find you online in the book, I just want to ask you one last question, which is, you know, you've written music, you've created companies, you've built this beautiful family. Out of everything you've done so far in your life, what are you most proud of and why? Probably the relationship with my parents. I think I would say, uh, you know, it's easy as you get, as they get older, you get older, you separate, you go different ways. You know, they live in Florida, I live in Atlanta. I think, you know, it's easy to, to be focused on your own family. I'm very proud of the relationship that we've been able to maintain and how me and my brother and sisters kind of handle my parents as they get older. That's something I'm really proud of. Um, I mean, I, my list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I'm, I am like, just feel so lucky on every level. I think about it every single day and I'm proud of, there's just a long list of stuff and I couldn't even single anything out, you know? Proud of my relationships with my friends. I'm proud of what I've been able to accomplish. I'm proud of how I've handled some things that, you know, haven't gone my way. I'm not proud of a lot of things too, but I feel really lucky. That's awesome. Well, I'm, you're a huge inspiration to me and a lot of my listeners and people on my list and everything. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on this. I know you're very busy with a lot of things. So just to finally wrap up, where can people find you, get the book, anything else you want to plug? No, thanks. I'm on Instagram. I'm just at Jesse Itzler, J-E-S-S-E-I-T-Z-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. um, and then my website is jesseitzler.com. And I have everything that I do there. I teach an online course and I have some other ventures and adventure races that we do. It's all there. So I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate you having me on. I found you <laughs> through a very unique way and I stalked you out. You didn't stalk me. I stalked you. Yeah. And, um, I don't limit my, uh, who I reach out to based on, you know, followers, wealth, this, that, no, not knocking you, you've done a great job, but I'm saying I, I seek people that I think are interesting, I can learn from. You were one of those people, you know, I just watched what you were doing and you had some really good, powerful tips on growing, on using Instagram, you know, and, and how to really take advantage of that platform. And I didn't even know who you were or anything about you and you welcomed me and I'm, I'm uh, glad that we were able to do this. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm so grateful that you reached out and I'm so grateful for you coming on. And uh, let me know next time in New York, we're going to hop on the trampoline. I'll buy you a green <laughs> juice and we'll hang out. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Jesse, thanks so much for coming on the show. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you.